right, good morning. Before we begin, I want to mention that I am going to give you, when you leave today, if you want it, a copy of all the slides. Uh, I'm going to be using the PowerPoint uh, here behind me, and uh, I realize it's a little difficult for some of you to see, so uh, or maybe keep up with for note-taking. So I will be giving you a copy of all the slides when you leave. They'll be on the table in the lobby. And uh, trust you can pick one of those up, or several of them. There should be plenty to go around. I would also recommend to Pastor Allen, maybe someone can pass this word on to him, that uh, the church scan this and put it in a PDF format and put it on the Internet for the sake of the folks that are watching on the Internet so that they can see the slides, because I don't think they can view that from the Internet. All right, let's turn to Matthew chapter 13 in our Bibles. Matthew chapter 13 this morning. And let's begin this session with a word of prayer. Father, we commit this time to you now as we study your word once again about this very important subject matter of the mysteries of the kingdom. And I ask, Lord, that you would meet with us during this hour. Lord, give your filling power through your Holy Spirit that the word would be conveyed in clarity and in truth. We look forward to what you're going to do in every heart. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to read two verses to start our time this morning. Matthew chapter 13, verses 10 and 11. And the disciples came and said unto him, Why speakest thou unto them in parables? He answered and said unto them, Because it is given unto you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it is not given. I have for some time been pondering this passage of Scripture. And uh, as many of you know, uh, teaching and preaching the word of the kingdom, uh, you tend to endure much attack from those who oppose such teaching. And this passage of Scripture has been a comfort to me. That's why I've been pondering it. Uh, Virtually always, those who attack this kingdom truth that uh, we talk about so much, virtually always the attackers are evangelical Christians who don't like what they're hearing. On the basis that, I've never heard that before. (laughs) If I had a dollar for every time I've heard that... (laughs) I might have some money in the bank. (laughs) Or, here's another common one, that's not what my pastor teaches or my Bible college taught me. (laughs) Okay. Or here's the other one, that's not scriptural. But then they never give you any scripture to back up their position. They just tell you that your position is not scriptural. They never give you any scriptural support to show you why it's not scriptural and why their position is. They just like to say that's not scriptural. Well, in this past year especially, I have personally experienced a great deal of attack, some quite hostile, uh, virtually always from those who are unteachable and unable to defend their position scripturally. And I'm sad to report... Uh, This breaks my heart. I've lost a lot of friends, not because of me. I mean, I continue to show friendship and graciousness 
but they walk away from me like I have the plague or something. And uh, unfortunately, I've lost some friends, many of whom I've known for many years, and uh, have made some enemies simply because of preaching the truth. And I always preach the truth in a gracious way. But still, when you preach truth, you may lose some friends, unfortunately. But thanks to the Lord, I've been greatly comforted by this passage of Scripture, Matthew chapter 13, the mysteries of the kingdom parables. I find here encouragement knowing that Jesus predicted this would happen. It's no surprise. Uh, Jesus, long in advance of these attacks and knowing the responses of people, told us it would happen. Now, my objective in preaching this passage today is first to encourage you. And it'll encourage me as well, of course, but it'll encourage all of us, I trust. And second, to present my understanding of this often misinterpreted passage of Scripture. Now, I need to preface my comments this morning before we get into our study with a few thoughts here. I know many of you have already settled in your mind the correct interpretation of this passage, and that's wonderful. However, I would challenge you to do two things as you listen to this message. First, please exercise charity toward me if I don't land on the particulars or the details where you land. (laughs) Uh, I have learned that we are friends, and uh, there ought not be fighting between us. Now, obviously, we may hold little uh, different particular details, differences, and, and that's to be expected. But we can learn from one another, and we can remain teachable. Uh, you know, you could be right, and I could be wrong. I freely admit that. But you know, there's also the possibility that I could be right, and you could be wrong. The point is, we need to be teachable to the Scriptures. Every time we hear the Word of God preached, we need to say, Now, Lord, what does your Word say? It's not the preacher, it's the Word of God. The preacher should be consistently preaching the Word of God. Sometimes we don't get all those details right, unfortunately. But we need to always be open to a fresh preaching of any text of Scripture, particularly if we're in friendly company such as this. Listen to the Spirit's still small voice is leading in your spirit and see if you might need to make some change, either life change or interpretation, understanding type change. I'm always keeping open to that, and I'm always learning. God would have us to be teachable. I uh, like to comment that we're all in the same ballpark regarding word of the kingdom teaching, so we need to show charity toward one another. Incidentally, I find it interesting that with respect to Matthew chapter 13, Govet and Lang and Whipple and Chitwood, just to name a few, all have different opinions as to the interpretation of these parables. And I'm sure if we went around the room, we could get a few more to add to the list. We all have different interpretation. Now, we believe the same core truth, but the details is what I'm talking about here. So I'm going to approach this text, give you the details as I understand them, And then you have to determine before the Lord what the Scripture is teaching. Now, here are some of the questions I would like to answer as we approach this text. Why are these parables referred to as the mysteries of the kingdom parables? And what does that term mean? And why did Jesus speak in parables? 
And most importantly, how do we interpret these parables? Now, I'm only going to have the time to cover the first two parables. And even at that, it's more of an overview without drilling down real deeply. But the first two are the big ones, uh, the parable of the sower and the parable of the wheat and tares. I'll give you some thoughts on the other parables, a few of them. Uh, But what I'm trying to do in this session this morning is to give you a hermeneutic for understanding this passage of Scripture. In other words, helping you to know how to interpret this passage of Scripture correctly. Because throughout my life, maybe this is the case with you too, we have heard a hermeneutic on understanding this passage, and I've realized in recent years that hermeneutic was all wrong. And I've had to undo a lot of damage in my thinking, but thank the Lord, he's patient with us and merciful. And uh, so this morning, I trust we can learn a few things about Matthew chapter 13. I'd like to begin by putting this chapter of scripture in its overall context. You know, that's always important when studying scripture. And Brother John is especially keen on that, putting the scripture passages that we're preaching in their overall context. I'd like to do that with Matthew chapter 13 because it's so important. And for me, now I could get into a whole lot more detail than I'm going to today. I'm just going to give you the high points here. But I'm going to say that the context of Matthew 13 really starts back in Matthew chapters 3 and 4. When John the Baptist came preaching and Jesus right after him, repent! For the kingdom of heaven is at hand, which I understand to mean repent, for the kingdom of the heavens is at hand. So here's what we need to do here for the next few minutes. We need to understand what this message is all about. What does this mean? Because our understanding of what this means is going to affect our understanding of Matthew chapter 13 and the reason for Jesus speaking in parables. Now, what does it mean? Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Well, let me first give you what I understand to be the first century Jewish misunderstanding. You know, when Jesus came and preached that message, repent for the kingdom of the heavens is at hand. The Jews heard something, but they misunderstood what Jesus said. Now, again, be charitable toward me if you don't understand it this way, but Here's what I think the Jews misunderstood. They assumed the kingdom of the heavens was Messiah's coming earthly kingdom as promised in the Old Testament. And so the first century Jewish response was this. We have Abraham to our father. As if to say, our national heritage guarantees our inclusion in the kingdom. Now think of the audacity of that comment. Think of the arrogance of the Jewish people when they hear Jesus talking about the kingdom of heaven and the need for them as Jewish people, his people, to repent so that they could be included in the kingdom of the heavens. The Jews saying, "Ah, wait a minute, we're Jews. We're secure. Abraham is our father. We have national heritage. You should understand that, Rabbi. We're a shoe-in for the kingdom. Now keep that in mind. I think that's going to sound familiar to something else we hear in modern times. 
let me give you the common Christian misunderstanding of what Jesus said to the Jews. And by this I mean our modern church understanding, what you've typically heard in your past in churches, maybe in Bible college. I heard this for years and years. Here's the common misunderstanding. It assumes the kingdom of the heavens is heaven and that Jesus is calling people to repent in order to be saved and given eternal life. I don't know how many times I've heard messages preached and how many times I've read in commentaries that I have on the shelves of my library that say this. In fact, there is a billboard in our town, and I'm thankful for a Christian emphasis in our town, but there's a billboard in our town that has a picture of flaming fire. And it says, repent or ye shall all likewise perish. And personally, I think that's a misunderstanding of that text. But it's a big billboard in our town, and it speaks to the poor hermeneutic of understanding the scriptures. See, when Jesus was giving this message, repent for the kingdom of the heavens is at hand, the Jews are thinking, he's talking about the earthly kingdom. We heard a lot about that in the Old Testament. Well, they wouldn't call it the Old Testament, but we would. And we've heard a lot about that in the scriptures. And we're a shoo-in as nationalistic Jews and common Christians say, no, uh, Jesus was preaching about heaven and your need to repent and get saved and have eternal life. I've heard this numerous, numerous, numerous times. Have you? How many of you have heard this preached or taught? Okay, yeah, I think it's pretty overwhelming. What is the common Christian response well, you need to repent and get saved from eternal condemnation. And they would say, if they're dispensationalists, that the first century Jews, if they had repented, Jesus would have launched his kingdom. I think all of this is, is a little bit of a misunderstanding on what Jesus was saying there. Repent, for the kingdom of the heavens is at hand. Now let me give you what I see as the correct interpretation of that message, okay? And again, be charitable here if you disagree with these details. But I believe what Jesus was saying is this. Turn back to the Lord in obedience in the spirit of 2 Chronicles 7.14 if you want to be included in Messiah's kingdom of the heavens. From my study of the scriptures, that was the message Jesus was giving. Giving. It wasn't get saved from eternal condemnation. It was Jewish people, get right with God. Repent. Turn back your hearts to him. Yes, that requires a change of mind. But you know, a change of mind without a change of behavior is not true repentance. John the Baptist said, bring forth fruits worthy of repentance. So he expected them to turn. So Jesus was not saying get saved from condemnation in this case. Now he did on other occasions. But in the synoptics, primarily, he's saying, Jewish people, you need to turn your hearts to the Lord. Get right with God if you want to be included in the kingdom of the heavens. And oh, by the way, there was a negative side to this gospel of the kingdom, too. If you don't, you will be judged. And that was uh, 70 A.D. When the Romans came in, destroyed Jerusalem and so on, that happened. Because they did not repent and turn their hearts back to the Lord. Now, obviously, I think most of you would recognize Second Chronicles 7.14. If my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face, 
turn from their wicked ways. Then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. That's part of Solomon's prayer. Remember, he's talking with the Lord there at the dedication of the temple. And God says to him, Solomon, if my people turn their hearts from me, I will judge them. But if they turn their hearts back toward me, I will forgive them and heal their land. And I think in that spirit, Jesus says, Jewish people, you need to get right with God. Now, what is the common Christian response to this interpretation? When I preach this message, when I say... Jesus was not telling the Jews to get saved in that message. He was telling the Jews to get right with God in that message. Oh, the common Christian response is this. We are heirs of God, and we are eternally secure. As the bride of Christ, we are guaranteed to co-rule with him in the coming kingdom. This is their response to the message Jesus preached to the Jews, which was later given to the church of Jesus Christ, as we're going to see. In other words, we're also to repent, for the kingdom of the heavens is at hand. But how many Christians have you encountered who say, well, I'm, I'm a child of God. I'm an heir of God. I'm eternally secure. I'm part of the bride of Christ. I'm guaranteed to rule with Jesus in his coming kingdom. Do you see a similarity in the modern day response to the first century response? Let me sum it up this way. The 21st century Christian response is essentially the same as the first century Jewish response. And here it is in modern lingo. We don't need to qualify. We're kingdom shoe-ins. And I am sad to report to you that I believe this for so many years, even of my adult life. But I'm thankful that our gracious God has since taught me otherwise. Now I realize I'm saved, I'm eternally secure, and I'm part of his overall kingdom, but I want to rule with him in the heavenly new Jerusalem. And I know you do as well. And I now understand there are qualifications to be able to do that. I used to think, I'm a shoe-in. And that's pretty arrogant. And does that not implicitly condone licentious living? Now, let me give you my expanded interpretation of the message that Jesus was giving to the Jews, which also applies to the church. Here's what I think it is. Three, three slides to summarize this in my own language. Jesus is offering to children of God the privilege of ruling and reigning together with him as his bride in the coming age. But you must qualify. It's not automatic. In order to qualify, you must follow him in discipleship. Deny self, take up your cross, and follow him. It is a life of obedience, a life of faithfulness, a life of perseverance amid suffering, a life of love. And let me just put in this parenthesis so there are uh, no confusing thoughts running around out there. This has nothing to do with salvation. All right? This is after salvation. Second slide, if you will meet his conditions, he will declare to you, well done, good and faithful servant at the judgment seat, and you will dwell with him in the kingdom of the heavens, which I understand to be the heavenly ruling realm of his kingdom. If you do not qualify, he will declare to you, thou wicked and slothful servant, or something to that effect, and you will forfeit rewards. 
Furthermore, you will dwell in the darkness outside, that is in the earthly realm, I believe, of the kingdom, weeping and gnashing your teeth, consciously regretting that you did not fulfill the conditions for ruling with him in the heavenly realm. That's how I understand. Repent for the kingdom of heavens is is at hand for modern audiences. How we apply it. What then are the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven? I've given you some broader context that I think is very important to understanding Matthew 13. And we've already read verses 10 and 11, so I won't read them, but essentially what's happening here are we have the disciples who come to Jesus and they say, why do you speak to the audience here, the crowds here? Why do you speak to them in parables? And Jesus essentially says, because I want you to get the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but I don't want them to get it. In fact, they won't get it. Let me define mysteries, and you know this. Truths previously hidden, but now revealed. What about kingdom of heaven? And I guess I've sort of already answered this, but let's go ahead and give this definition. The heavenly ruling realm of the millennial kingdom. Again, my definition The new Jerusalem, the city of reward, we might call it. Only qualifying saints will dwell there and will co-rule with Jesus as his bride. That is different than the message you hear preached in most churches today. Most churches assume that because I'm eternally saved, I possess eternal life, I am automatically his bride. I will automatically rule and reign with Jesus. And you've all heard that preached out there. I don't believe that's a correct message. And as I already said, I believe it implicitly condones licentious living. It is not the doctrine of eternal reward as taught in the scriptures. Why did Jesus speak in parables? Look with me at verse 12 in our text. This is Jesus speaking. For whosoever hath, to him shall be given, and he shall have more abundance. But whosoever hath not, from him shall be taken away, even that he hath. So we have the haths and the hath nots in the text. So we have truth seekers and truth rejectors. So Jesus is saying in this verse, his purpose in speaking in parables is to reveal to truth seekers the mysteries of the kingdom. And that's from that phrase to him, more will be given and he will have abundance. But what about truth rejectors? Well, by speaking in parables, Jesus is going to conceal from truth rejectors the mysteries of the kingdom. What he has will be taken away. Now we go to verses 13 through 16. Let's read those. Therefore speak I to them in parables, because they seeing see not, and hearing they hear not, neither do they understand. And in them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah, which saith, By hearing ye shall hear, and shall not understand, and seeing ye shall see, and shall not perceive. For this people's heart is wax gross, their ears are dull of hearing, their eyes they have closed, lest at any time they should see with their eyes, hear with their ears, should understand with their heart, and should be converted, and I should heal them. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear." What is Jesus teaching? Well, he's teaching that truth rejectors have no regard for truth. They refuse to see and hear, which means they have no understanding. 
They have physical eyes. They have physical ears. They have the ability to see and hear, but they don't. They won't. And this was predicted in Isaiah chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. They're dull of hearing. Their eyes are closed. Truth seekers, on the other hand, do see and hear. They will learn through the parables what the Old Testament prophets desired to see and hear. And I trust we have a room full of truth seekers. (laughs) And I know there are many here today. Praise the Lord. Who are these truth rejectors to whom Jesus is referring? Well, in this particular context, it would be the national leadership of Israel. In this context, the Pharisees. Now we know it would include the Sadducees on other occasions. Uh, But here the Pharisees are named, and they're the national leadership of Israel. Uh, We're not going to read these verses, but in chapter 12, verses 14 through 21, they sought to destroy Jesus. It says it very plainly. In chapter 12, verses 22 through 32, these national leaders committed the unpardonable sin, accusing Jesus of casting out demons in the power of Satan. And this is just an aside. It's just my opinion. I'm not dogmatic about this at all. But I personally feel that the unpardonable sin is not for today. I think this is something that the Jewish leadership did in rejecting Jesus. You can argue with me about that after the service. That's just what I think. Chapter 12, verses 38 and 42, they asked for yet another sign. I mean, how many do they need? (laughs) Jesus had done a number of signs. And so in chapter 12, verse 34, Jesus refers to them as a generation of vipers. That's not a very nice term, but it's very descriptive of the Pharisees. Evil. Well, what truth was rejected? Obviously, they refused to recognize Jesus as the Son of God. They ignored the signs or miracles, asking for yet more signs, as we saw in the previous slide. They rejected the offer of the kingdom of the heavens on the basis that Abraham was their father. And that brought a tragic result. Would you turn with me to chapter 21 for a moment? We're going to come back to chapter 13, so hold your place, please. Chapter 21, and find verse 42. Jesus saith unto them, Did ye never read in the Scriptures the stone which the builders rejected? I believe that's referring to the crucifixion of Christ. The same has become the head of the corner. I believe that's referring to the resurrection and ascension of Christ. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I say unto you, the kingdom of God shall be taken from you and given to a nation, bringing forth the fruit thereof. So what happened? The tragic result, the kingdom of God was taken from the Jews and given to another nation, bringing forth the fruits thereof. The same offer of the kingdom of heavens, in other words, is now being made to the church. Same requirements. Same reward. Inclusion in the kingdom of heavens if you qualify. That's how I understand this. That's how I understand the synoptic gospels, the message of those three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke largely. John, I see, is largely evangelistic. Again, some disagree on that. But that is my position at the present time. So what can we say? Hey, the parables are for our learning. (laughs) 
I don't know how many times I have heard the parables preached as gospel messages. That's for the lost. But that's not what the parables are about. The parables are not for the lost, predominantly. The parables are for the saved. The parables are for you and me to learn how to qualify for the kingdom of the heavens. And I'll tell you, if we would grasp that, we could preach these parables and thoroughly enjoy them. Now, let's go to the key to interpreting the parables in Matthew chapter 13. Would you go back there with me, please? I could, could read verse 52 also. I'll let you do that later. I'm just going to read verse 19 right now. This is the key to interpreting these parables. When anyone, verse 19, when anyone heareth the word of the kingdom and understandeth it not, then cometh the wicked one and catcheth away that which was sown in his heart, and it goes on into the parable. But it's really that first part. When anyone heareth the word of the kingdom, don't miss this. The message in this entire context here in Matthew 13, the seed in these parables is not the gospel of salvation from eternal condemnation. We could call it the gospel of grace. That's not what Jesus is talking about in these parables. Yet that's what I commonly hear preached. But that's not what's in question here. What is in question here? Well, it tells us in verse 19, the message is the word of the kingdom. Teaching about the kingdom. Sometimes simply called in this text the word. If you look in verse number 20, right in the middle of the verse, the word. Verse 21, the end of the verse, the word. And verse 22, twice, the word, the word. Verse 23, the word, and so on. You get the idea. All of those in your mind, you could say the word of the kingdom because that's the context in verse 19. Jesus tells us that is important. In other words, this passage is teaching about how to qualify to rule with Christ in the heavenly realm of his kingdom, the very teaching the Jewish leadership rejected, and I might add this, the very teaching that modern Christian teachers are rejecting. Well, against that backdrop, which I think is very, very important backdrop, we go now to the parable of the sower. And I said to you, we're only going to cover the first two parables in any kind of detail. You're going to have to study the others on your own, but I believe I'm giving you a hermeneutical template for understanding the others. In other words, I'm giving you the construct or the paradigm, the right scriptural interpretive understanding, so that you can then go and understand the other parables. But let's apply what we've just talked about, this hermeneutical grid. Let's apply it to the parable of the sower. Let's start by reading verses 3 through 8, if you'd follow along. He spake many things unto them in parables, saying, Behold, a sower went forth to sow. And when he sowed, some seeds fell by the wayside, and the fowls came and devoured them up. Some fell upon stony places where they had not much earth, and forthwith they sprung up because they had no deepness or depth of earth. And when the sun was up, they were scorched, and because they had no root, they withered away, and some fell among thorns, and the thorns sprung up and choked them. But others fell into good ground and brought forth fruit, some an hundredfold, some sixtyfold, some thirtyfold. I believe this parable 
in the context of the word of the kingdom, is all about four possible responses to the word of the kingdom teaching. So teaching even like I'm doing today, but teaching that you might do in your Sunday school class or your pastor might do in your church if he understands word of the kingdom truth. Four responses from hearers. Number one is what the scripture calls the wayside response. Now let's go down to verse number 18. Hear ye therefore the parable of the sower. When anyone heareth the word of the kingdom and understandeth it not, then cometh the wicked one and catcheth away that which was sown in his heart. This is he which receives seed by the wayside. So this is the person who does not understand. May I call it deer in the headlights? I don't know how many times I have preached the word of the kingdom from the pulpit and I look out at people who have a blank stare like they're in another world. They don't grasp it. They don't get it. They're deer in the headlights. Have you ever experienced that? (laughs) Sure. Well, what does the Bible say? The birds snatch away. In other words, the birds devour the truth representing the evil one. And as we've already said earlier in the message, these are those who often say, I've never heard that before. Or, worse yet, I don't believe it. That's dangerous. Or even worse yet, and this is, I've been accused of this, I know many of you have too, this is heresy. (laughs) Really sad when a pastor says that who ought to know better. So that's the first response. They just don't get it. Response number two, I call the stony ground response. Let's read it. Verse 20. But he that received the seed into stony places, the same as he that heareth the word, and anon with joy receiveth it. Yet hath he not root in himself, but dureth for a while, or endures for a little time? For when tribulation or persecution ariseth because of the word, by and by he is offended. This person receives the truth with joyfulness. So you preach about the kingdom, the word of the kingdom. They grasp it. They think this is wonderful. But they only endure for a short while, then they wither. There's no depth. Sad to say I had someone in my church just like this who started out of the gate after I taught taught kingdom truth, started out of the gate like a racehorse, (laughs) chomping at the bit. This is wonderful. Can't get enough of it. Went out and became an evangelist, so to speak, for this out in the community with other Christians. Ah, but after a while, couldn't stand the heat. People accusing him, saying, that's not right. That's heresy. You've never heard that before. There's a reason for that. (laughs) Yeah, there's a reason for it, all right. The birds have snatched it away. The evil one has taken it. Well, unfortunately, that fellow became offended, is the word in the scriptures. That is, he got tripped up by persecution from other saints. So I call this the stony ground response because it's scriptural. And it only has shallow roots because this person does not continue to endure in the word of the kingdom. Well, this explains a lot of things, doesn't it? How often have you heard this preached as a gospel message? This is a person who hears the gospel, doesn't really get it, 
may have some indication that they were interested and may have gotten a little bit. And they might even go so far as to say what Hebrew says. They tasted of the heavenly gift. They were a partaker of the Holy Spirit. And I'm saying, wait a minute. To become a partaker of the Holy Spirit is a saved person. Unsaved people don't partake of the Holy Spirit. Now this has nothing to do with the gospel. That's a ridiculous interpretation I now see. I didn't used to think that way. Shame on me. Uh, But God is gracious. Don't preach it as a gospel text. This is for the saved. And it explains a lot of things. The third response is what we call the thorny ground response. And let's read in verse number 22. He also that received seed among the thorns is he that heareth the word and the care of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and he becometh unfruitful. So this is a person who also receives the message. Now I'm going to tell you something, folks, and I'm dead serious about this. Anyone here is a possible candidate for this. Don't ever say, that won't happen to me. Wherefore, let him that thinketh he standeth take heed lest he fall. You are capable of committing any sin. Did you know that? Yeah, the devil knows that too. And you are capable of this, the thorny ground response. You have received the kingdom message. That's why you're here at the conference. I'm not worried about you being the first type, the person who doesn't get it. I mean, there could be someone here that fits that category, but I doubt it. Why would you come to this conference? (laughs) But you never know. And the second one, probably not. You folks have been at this for quite a while. But this one is a real possibility. So take heed. Why? The love of this present age and the delusion that we often can get over possessions will choke out the truth. So here's the idea of this. You have a lot of knowledge in your heads about the word of the kingdom. You've all been well taught. But are you living it? Are you fulfilling the qualifications of the Sermon on the Mount? All these passages in the New Testament that talk about how we qualify to rule with Christ in the kingdom of the heavens. Are you living it? And if you're living it today, beware of tomorrow. Because Satan has a way of grabbing it from you simply by getting you interested in other things. Now, you still have the truth of the kingdom. You may never forsake that in your head. But if you're not living it in your life, what good is it to you? To me, I think this is a big deal in kingdom circles. And I'm not afraid to preach it. And I'm not afraid to challenge every one of you to beware and watch yourself before the Lord and ask his Holy Spirit to continue to work on you and never leave you alone. Because it'd be easy for any one of us To lose our focus on Jesus Christ and just get caught up with this materialistic culture. That'll rob you. You could stand before the throne of Jesus one day and say, But Lord, I embrace the word of the kingdom. And he might say to you, Depart from me because while you embrace the teaching, you just didn't live it. Thou wicked and slothful servant. I fear this in my own life and so I ask the Holy Spirit to stay after me. He's so gracious. 
Well, this results in unfruitfulness. We go to the good ground response. Verse 23, He that receives seed into the good ground is he that heareth the word and understandeth it, which also beareth fruit and bringeth forth some an hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. This one understands and receives the message. I trust there are a bunch of you here in the audience who fit this category. Maybe everybody. I hope so. Bearing fruit in some quantity, 100-fold, 60-fold, 30-fold. Brother Powell sees a little more in this than I would see. I simply would just suggest to you that God has given us different talents and abilities and opportunities, and he will judge us according to what he gave us and what he expects of us. And for some of you, it might be a 30-fold production of fruit. For others, it might be 60-fold. For others, 100-fold. But we don't need to compare against one another. We just simply need to let the Lord sort it out as we do our best for him. By his grace. We have to do it through the filling power of his Holy Spirit. Can't do it of ourselves. But anyway, bears fruit in some quantity. Whatever that means. And maybe there is more to it than I'm missing here, but this is just how I see it. Now let me give you a simple template for the next six parables. We're not going to talk about these. Just one slide here. The kingdom of heaven is like each one of these parables starts out. The next six of the seven starts out the kingdom of heaven is like. In your mind, you could say specifically the word of the kingdom of heaven is like. In other words, here's how word of the kingdom truth regarding qualifying to rule with Christ in the heavenly realm of his kingdom will fare during the church age. This is how I understand this. Well, how will word of the kingdom truth fare in the church age? First, it will be counterfeited. Parable of wheat and tares, which we're going to look at in just a moment to close our message. In the parable of the mustard seed, I believe Christ is teaching that it will be distorted and made unfruitful. Again, this has nothing to do with the gospel, per se. It has to do with the gospel of the kingdom, the word of the kingdom. And in the parable of the leavened bread, it will be overcome by error. This is the one that always gets me when I hear preachers say, Oh, the church is going to grow and thrive just like the leaven and the bread, and it's going to expand. <laughs> and I just want to say, Hello! <laughs> Isn't leaven a type of sin? Didn't Jesus say, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees? <laughs> I just want to go, Duh! <laughs> Sorry. Uh, it seems obvious to me now. It didn't always seem obvious to me either. This has to do, and this is comforting to me, I just comment on this before we move on, the parable of the leavened bread is very comforting to me. It explains a lot of things. I mean, we live in a world where we teach word of the kingdom, but how many people do you know that do? I don't know too many. Somebody has called them the one percenters of Christianity, or or maybe less than one (laughs) percent. Here's the point. Satan is going to corrupt word of the kingdom teaching through his leaven. And don't we have Christian teachers out there corrupting this message? And you know what? They're very close to us in other ways. They're dispensationalists. They believe in eternal security. They're fundamental in their doctrine. But they miss this. And that goes back to the counterfeits that Satan has brought. The first one up there on the list. But the leavened bread explains a lot of things for me because it tells me that at the end of the age, there will be very few believing and teaching this message, the word of the kingdom. Now, let's go to the parable of the wheat and tares. 
And let's read first, and then I'll give you the common misinterpretation of this parable. Let's start by reading verses 24 through 30. Another parable put he forth unto them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is likened unto a man which sowed good seed in his field. But while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. But when the blade was sprung up and brought forth fruit, then appeared the tares also. So the servants of the householder came and said unto him, Sir, didst thou not sow good seed in thy field? From whence then hath it tares, or weeds, we could say. Verse 28, he saith unto them, An enemy hath done this. The servant said unto him, Wilt thou then that we go and gather them up? Now notice the answer in verse 29. He said, Nay, lest while ye gather up the tares, ye root up also the wheat with them. Let both grow together under the harvest, and in the time of harvest I will say to the reapers, Gather ye together first the tares, and bind them in bundles to burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn. Let me give you the very common misinterpretation of this passage, one that I once held to. They would say the wheat represents true Christians and the tares represent professing Christians, mere lookalikes. Sounds good, especially if you're a Calvinist. Thus, the parable shows how the church will be infiltrated by unbelievers. Now, again, uh, Calvinists like this view for it fits their paradigm. Perseverance of the saints fits it perfectly. Because if somebody doesn't act like a saint, they're not a saint. They were never saved. Do you know a Calvinist could go through your church and say, you know, there are a lot of people out there that just aren't living for the Lord. They must not be saved. And you know what a Calvinist will do? They'll start preaching the gospel to them. And you know what I say? That does great damage. You don't need the gospel if you're already saved. What you need is the message of repent. For the kingdom of the heavens is at hand. You need the message of get right with God if you want to be included in his heavenly ruling realm. And we could bring that all the way through the New Testament into the Pauline epistles and the Johannine epistles. It's everywhere. It's in Peter's writings. It's everywhere. It's the message that Jesus shared. Way back to the Jews. It's now applying to the church. You know, I talked to a pastor one time over lunch. (laughs) And he was not a Calvinist, but he had been infected by Calvinistic theology. And I find that so common today. And this man said to me, now he's he's a pastor who believes the gospel and preaches the gospel very clearly. He believes in salvation by faith alone and so on. But he said to me over lunch, boy, I believe 80% of my congregation are unsaved. I said, what? (laughs) I said, then you're not doing a very good job of giving the gospel because his congregation had been with him for many years. I said, you know what? I said, I tend to believe maybe 80% of your congregation are carnal saints living for themselves rather than living for the Lord. He goes, you think so? (laughs) He hadn't considered that because he had been infected by the Calvinistic doctrine of perseverance of the saints. If you don't act like a Christian, you're not a Christian. But that's not what the Bible teaches. Now remember, these parables are not about how the gospel of grace fares, but how the word of the kingdom fares. That's a key to understanding 
these parables. Let me give you what I understand to be the correct interpretation of this parable. The good seed, the children of the kingdom, are the good ground responders from the parable of the sower. They are saints that have received the word of the kingdom and they are bearing fruit. The tares are the children of the wicked one. In this context, they are not unsaved, but they are saints, may I suggest, Christian leaders who have been deceived by Satan and are preaching a very similar but counterfeit message. I suggest they're Christian leaders because just as the Jewish leadership at the time of Christ misunderstood and refused his offer, so the Christian leadership of today are primarily the ones misunderstanding and refusing Christ's offer to rule with him in the kingdom of the heavens. Some are troubled to think that the children of the wicked one could be saints, but did not Jesus say to him, and I think Roy said it to me yesterday and and maybe to somebody else, get thee behind me, Satan. <laughs> you remember that? <laughs> jesting, he did it. Now, Jesus didn't do it jestingly to Peter. The point is that whenever a Christian is deceived and being used as a tool of Satan to spread error, he or she is functioning as if he were a child of the wicked one. Also in John chapter 8, verses 31 through 44, we won't turn. Jesus is speaking to those who believed on him, and he urged them to follow the pathway of discipleship, accusing them of following Satan, which he called their father. He said, ye are of your father the devil, and the lusts of your father ye will do. But yet, previous verses said these are those who believed on him. (laughs) So don't let it bother you that they're called children of the wicked one. They're being used by him. Now, what are Satan's goals? Oh, this is so important. We need to understand that Satan is trying to counterfeit the word of the kingdom. Did you know that? (laughs) I say that a little tongue-in-cheek. I know you know it. How does he do this? This is what I want you to understand. By diluting the doctrine of eternal rewards. If Satan can confuse people on the doctrine of eternal rewards, he's got them. Secondly, by convincing saints they will all rule and reign with Jesus unconditionally. And thirdly, this is my pet peeve, by gospelizing the synoptic gospels that is interpreting everything as a gospel text applicable to the lost and not to the saved. Boy, I hear preachers all the time preaching gospel messages from the synoptic gospels, taking these passages that are for the saved and applying them to the lost. And it's just dreadful to me. Satan's goals. Let's continue this. Number two, stop the children of the kingdom from bearing fruit. Well, how does he do this? Well, get them focused on fleshly living. Any one of us could fall prey to this, as I said earlier. We could live for ourselves. But notice this. Get them focused exclusively on soul winning, but not on preparing sons unto glory, the high cost of discipleship. Now, this sounds a little controversial, but bear with me as I explain it. I personally do not think that Satan is very much intimidated by the salvation of lost people. Are you shocked to hear that? I don't think he is. Rather, I believe Satan is intimidated when saved people become sons unto glory. Huias, 
mature, firstborn sons. Why does that concern him? Because they are the ones who will work with Christ to rule over the angelic realm that Satan now holds as a position of authority and power over this world and Christ will depose him and we will rule over the angelic realm. Satan hates that. Far more, I think, than people getting saved, though I'm sure that doesn't make him happy. It's a great threat to Satan. Now, if I'm correct about this, bear with me. Please don't tar and feather me afterwards. I am leaving town, but I prefer to go as I am. (laughs) If I'm correct about this, then what does this say about all those church ministries whose primary objective is reaching the lost? Now, don't misunderstand. We've got to reach the lost. And we need to love and care and have compassion. Jesus did. But all I'm saying is this. Many ministries that I'm familiar with, all of their energies are channeled into reaching the unsaved. But by diluting the doctrine of eternal rewards and teaching saints that they will all rule with Jesus in the end, and by gospelizing the synoptic gospels, they are not fulfilling the ultimate objective that Christ has for his saints, and that is preparing them to rule with him. They are missing the mark. They are missing the great purpose for which they are created. The result is they are not glorifying God. And by the way, I don't even like the term soul winning with respect to reaching the lost with the gospel of grace. That's spirit winning. But as I say say in my church, that sounds kind of spooky. Let's go spirit winning on Tuesday night. I need to move on. Bear with me. We just have just a few slides left and we're done. I'm going over time. I apologize, but Carl Natrum will too, and lunch follows. So we're all patient people. Here's the judgment. And we need to look at this, please. If you go to verse 39, just read a few verses, and we're going to wrap this up. We're near the end. The enemy that sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the world. The reapers are the angels. Verse 40, as therefore the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so shall it be in the end of this world. And the word world there is ion, which is age. The Son of Man shall send forth his angels. They shall gather out of his kingdom all things that offend and them which do iniquity. Shall cast them into a furnace of fire. There shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Then shall the righteous shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. Who hath ears to hear, let him hear. All right, here's the judgment for the tares. But before I get to just the tares, I should point this out. Notice that the judgment here for both the wheat and the tares occurs at the same time. At the end of this age. Say, why do you say that? Well, we know unbelievers will be judged after the millennium. Revelation chapter 20, that's a different time frame entirely. These in this text are all being judged at the end of this age before the millennium. Thus, no unbelievers are being judged in this parable. They're all believers. Don't let the furnace of fire scare you. This is a parable. The tares, those used by Satan to counterfeit truth, will be cast into a furnace of fire. This is not hell. Contextually, it must be the consuming fires of the judgment seat. If this bothers you, you really have to reckon with the fact that this is the judgment at the end of this age. It cannot include unbelievers. 
the consequence of promulgating error in this present age will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, expressing sorrow and deep regret. And is that not language we see in other parables with respect to the outer darkness, the darkness on the outside? Let's continue with this judgment. What about the fruit-bearing children of the kingdom? Ah, they will be rewarded. Then the righteous shall shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. And my mind is going to Daniel chapter 12, verses 1, 2, and 3. Our response to the parable? Oh, take heed. Remember what I said earlier? Any one of us could fall into fleshly living, though we have kingdom knowledge in our head. Who hath ears to hear? Let him hear, Jesus said. Pay attention to this. Now, last slide. How should we respond to those who attack the word of the kingdom? This has been so comforting to me. Should we attack back? What does it say back in verses 28, 29, and 30? No, the Lord says, leave them alone. God will deal with them. Let both grow together unto the harvest. Here's why. Lest ye root up also the wheat. Think with me now. Why did Jesus say that? If you start attacking those who are attacking you. Now, I'm not talking about clarifying some things, trying to be instructive, graciously trying to let them know what you believe the Scripture is teaching. But I'm talking about a spirit of when they attack you, you start attacking back. Think about it. How's that going to affect good people who are kingdom believers? They're going to look at you and they're going to say, man, my pastor sure is a contentious guy. And the servant of the Lord must not strive. My pastor has an angry spirit. And maybe that's characterized a lot of fundamentalism in the past. I'm a fundamentalist. I grew up one and I believe it's scriptural truth. But I've seen a lot of anger and a lot of rotten attitudes and fleshly carnal behavior. You know what? You start attacking the tares and the wheat will say, whoa. And they might just back away from what you've been teaching them. They might just find another church where they can have a loving pastor, even if he doesn't teach these things. There you have it. A hermeneutic on how to understand the mysteries of the kingdom, and maybe a little more, the synoptic gospels in a nutshell. I'm writing on these things right now. I welcome any thoughts after the message, but here's the most important takeaway from this. And thank you for your patience, by the way. Here's the most important takeaway. I need to take heed what the Lord is saying to me in his word because he says so right at the end of the parable of the wheat and tares. I could fall prey to fleshly living. I could fall prey to the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches. Oh, God, stay after me. I don't want to go there. I believe he'll honor that. Let's bow in prayer. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Drive it deep in our thoughts, in our being. Help us to live it and spread it to others by your grace and with your enablement. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you.